to Sardis Baptist Church in our Easter service. I hope and pray that we will enjoy family, that we will enjoy the lunch that most of us are going to have, or many of us, after we leave here. But I hope more than anything that we will enjoy the time in God's Word learning about our Savior. Amen? Last week, we left Jesus Christ riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, as predicted by the prophet Zechariah. We saw a crowd of thousands rejoicing and honoring Jesus as He rode towards Jerusalem because they understood He was presenting Himself as that Messiah. And they were sure that it was at this time that Jesus was going to ride on this colt, ride into Jerusalem, and start His overthrow of the Roman government. They were shouting. They were singing psalms attributed to no one else but the Messiah. But within this mass of people praising God, singing psalms, We see a stark contrast from the one who is riding on the colt. I want us to review that again. Take a look at what it says in Luke 19. Remember, this is happening while thousands of people are praising him. And when he drew near, that's Jesus, and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Let that contrast sink in. Let it make you pause at the picture that Luke is painting. Thousands of people rejoicing and singing, but the one they are rejoicing over is weeping. And it's not a quiet weeping. He's just not riding there and tears are running down his face. This is the type of bitter, deep weeping that you would have over losing a loved one. Why was Jesus weeping? Because they were searching for peace in the wrong place. Luke makes that clear in the verse that we just read there. He says, if you had known this day, even you the things which make for peace. He said, if you had listened to me, if you had known what makes for true peace, you would understand what I'm going to Jerusalem for. Not to overthrow the government, but to die on the cross for you. The crowd was rejoicing because they thought it was a day of liberation. They thought Jesus was going to overthrow the oppression He wept because they were seeking a fickle peace, a temporary peace that was earthly and based on their desire for comfort and power over their oppressors. But they had missed the point of Jesus' earthly ministry. Oh, how Jesus wanted them to have known the things that make for real peace, the things that He had been teaching, the peace that He was describing as being right with God and not being an enemy of God. He says that's where real peace is found. Because no matter how we live on this earth, when we take our last breath, if we are not, do not have peace with God, we will incur the wrath of God. And Jesus says, that's the peace I want you to know, the peace that I'm going to provide that makes you right with God again. Jesus was weeping because their coming judgment, because they had rejected what he had taught about repentance unto salvation. And that's where we stopped and asked that each of you would consider this week, what kind of peace are you really searching for? Are you searching for the peace that the world offers through things and relationships and jobs and, and uh, getting off the grid and everything else? Or are you seeking the peace that God offers through His Son, Jesus Christ? That day that we looked at last week, the day of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, was the beginning of what was known as the Passion Week, the last seven days of Christ's life on earth. Throughout that week, Jesus cleansed the temple, healed people, 
continued to teach his disciples, confronted the religious leaders, told parables, knowing all the while that each day that passed was one day closer to his crucifixion. Then that fateful day came. When Jesus participated in his last Passover meal, it was a special meal with his disciples. And after the meal, he and his disciples left and went to the Mount of Olives, where while he was praying, Judas, leading the guards and a crowd of people, betrayed him. One of his own disciples. He was arrested and taken to the religious leaders and then the Pilate where he was severely beaten and eventually condemned to die by crucifixion. Many of the same people who had worshipped him just days before, who had cried out in their praise of him, were people who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. In just seven days, they realized that he wasn't the Messiah they wanted and they wanted nothing to do with him. Just crucify this man for giving us hope the hope that we wanted, the peace that we wanted, not the peace that he was offering. He was led to Golgotha where he was crucified between two thieves. As was prophesied, he died on the cross and was placed in a tomb. The crowd just dispersed to wait again for the Messiah that would come and liberate them. The religious leaders sealed the tomb and dispersed thinking they had won the victory. The disciples, confused and wondering what they should now do now, dispersed back to their homes. He was gone, just like any other man, just like all the other men they thought might be the Messiah, but Jesus was just like them. He died. But in reality, Jesus, he was the true Messiah, the one who would provide real peace for all men, and the tomb could not hold him. Amen? We are here today because the tomb could not hold him. Three days later, he bodily arose, again proving that he was the prophesied one. For 40 days, he appeared to his disciples and over 500 other people in, his, in bodily form. No one would ever now really truthfully be able to deny his resurrection. Too many people saw him. He then ascended to the Father and sat at his right hand, waiting for the day when he will come back in victory. And that's where he's sitting right now. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. He is the radiance, Jesus Christ, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, saying that He is divine. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He is the one that holds our reality together. After making purification for sins, after dying for our sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. That is where our resurrected Savior sits today on the right hand of the Father, waiting to come and claim us as his own. And that's why we're here this morning, celebrating the resurrection of the true Messiah, celebrating the fact that through faith in him, Jesus Christ, we can find real peace with God for all of eternity. And all God's people say, Amen. So, we're done this morning, right? We just went through all the, all, everything. We went through all the gospel presentations of the Passion Week. We went through His death. We went through His resurrection. So we're done. We can go home, right? You know me better than that, don't you? No, I just wanted to get all of our hearts and minds focused on what the Gospels reveal to us about the last few days of Jesus' life on earth. I wanted to end with uh, the vision of Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father, waiting to come back to take His place 
on the throne of his ancestor David. He is going to be the king that comes back and rules on Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. He's going to come back and rule in David's throne in Zion. And as I was thinking about Jesus sitting in victory on the right hand of his father, it brought me great comfort, and I hope it does you too. He knows what is going on here on earth. He knows the difficulty his people are going to have and are having. And I wanted to pass that comfort on to you, but I really wasn't sure on how I was going to do that. How do we get this connected to us? How do we take all those chapters in the Gospels and get them connected to us to where we really have comfort because our Savior is alive? But then I heard a sermon by Vodi Bakum on a podcast. His sermon was on Psalm 2. So we're going to talk about Easter in the Old Testament in Psalm 2. And it really touched my heart because Psalm 2 gives us some insight, great insight on our lives now, how God feels about the rebellion we see all around us and what is in the future for our Savior Jesus Christ. And I want to give credit to Pastor Bauckham because uh, the outline that he used was such an excellent outline. I am using his outline. And so I want us all, please, to turn to Psalm chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can take it, uh, get it, the Red Pew Bible in front of you. And it's on, uh, Psalm 2 is on page 568. But I really hope that you take a Bible and actually look at it as we go through today. Because what we're going to find is absolutely amazing. Let's read Psalm chapter 2. It's 12 verses long. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs The Lord holds them in derision, and then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. O now, therefore, O kings, be wise Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those, are those all who take refuge in Him. The structure of this psalm is divided into four stanzas. That would be like the verses that we sang in some of our uh, songs this morning. And each of the stanzas are three verses long. And we're actually going to look at the whole hymn. And the first thing we see in verses 1 through 3, sinful man is at war with God. Sinful man is at war with God. One of the things that we need to do before we continue is to identify who the anointed one that we see in verse 2. Look at verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Who is the Lord's anointed? Who is the Lord's anointed? That is going to be key for throughout the rest of the of, of song. Who is his anointed one? And we see in Acts chapter 4, verses of 25 through 27, who this is. Acts chapter 4, verses 25 through 27. Who, and that's the psalmist, through the mouth of our father David, who was the author of this psalm, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
And the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. You recognize that? Does that sound familiar? What is Luke quoting? Psalm 2. So we understand that the anointed one in Acts chapter 4 is also the anointed one where? In Psalm 2. For truly this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. So who is the anointed one in Psalm 2? Jesus Christ. Remember something. The book of Psalms was written thousands of years before this. This is what is called a messianic psalm. It is a psalm that gives, gave the Old Testament saints a view into what was going to happen. They didn't know who the anointed one was going to be. They had no clue. They didn't know about Jesus Christ, but we do. And so we understand that Psalm 2 and all of Psalm 2 is talking about whom? Jesus Christ. So everything we see here is about Jesus Christ. And that's why it applies to us today. It's talking about Jesus. This psalm points to the predicted Messiah who we now know as Jesus Christ. And verses 1 and 2 paint a vivid picture. Look at what it says. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? And the kings of the earth, kings plural, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. The psalmist paints a picture of nations assembling their armies bringing to bear all their weapons, marshalling all their resources to fight against God. That's the picture we see there. The whole world, all the nations of the world are marshalling up to do what? Fight against God. They all have the same mission. Win the war against God. Sinful man wants to rid the world of God and His authority so they can worship themselves and their own authority. Sinful mankind wants to get rid of God. These verses also raise a very interesting question. Think about this. How in the world do nations fight against God and His anointed? Think about that. How in the world does man fight against God? He doesn't have a body. They can't lay hold of Him. What are they marshalling all their resources against Him when they don't even know where He is? They can't fight against God like they fight against each other. There's nowhere for them to go and lay hold of Him. God is spirit. So how do the nations fight against God who they can't even grab a hold of? They war against His people. They war against His people. They go to war against the church, those who represent the one that they want to destroy. They rage against those who speak His words and are identified as His holy nation. Listen to what Peter writes about this church. But you, talking to us as Christ followers, are a chosen race. Do you want to fix your identity problems? Do you want to have a good sense of who you are in Christ? This here tells us you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Who is part of that royal priesthood? Everybody here this morning who is a Christ follower. You're a priest. You're part of the royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. You belong to God that you may proclaim. Why are we that? That we may proclaim the excellencies, excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why are we a royal priesthood? Why are we a people of his possession? Because God has called us out to do what? Everything we're learning in Acts, be witnesses for him. 
Once you were a people, but now you are God's people. Once you, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What we understand here is that the church is God's holy people. We are his kingdom priests. And when they rage against God and when they want to marshal all their resources against God, they do that against whom? His anointed ones, us. We are the people and therefore the nations will rage against us because we represent the one they can't lay a hold of. Don't we see this happening all around us today? Don't we see this in the laws that are being made? In the way the school systems, the media, the social media portrays us as being people on the wrong side of history? They see us as being backwards and even harmful to society because we disagree with the sexual revolution, critical race theory, and a woman's right to abortion, and a whole host of other things. They go, that's not what we believe, and we want to rid ourselves of you because you represent him who we hate. The world can't fight against God, so they rage against his people. His church. Why do they do that? Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They don't want to be restrained by divine authority. They want to have total autonomy. They don't want anything controlling them or telling them how they should or how they should not live. They hate us for believing Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus came and said to them, listen to this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to whom? Jesus Christ. And what does Psalms say? Look at it again. Let us burst the bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They don't want that authority. They don't want to recognize that authority. They want to have authority that is vested where? In themselves. They don't want to be restrained by divine authority. They hate us for believing this statement that Jesus has all authority. They refuse to be constrained by Jesus. They want their own authority. They want a complete personal autonomy. They don't want to bow down to anybody but themselves. And to make it even worse, you and I have the audacity. Not only do we believe that Jesus Christ has the authority, but we also believe this. For his people, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. All who? All nations. And those nations are the ones that Psalm is talking about doing what? Raging against the authority. But we're supposed to do what? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. They can't believe we would actually think this is right. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you teaching them to observe. We're not just supposed to state it. We're not supposed to just say there is an authority of God over all of us. We are actually supposed to go into the nations that hate God and teach them and say, you need to be underneath this authority. You need to do what God has commanded us to do. How dare you tell me what I should do? Because you think God told you what to do. And they rage against us because of that. 
How dare we even think we should be the ones teaching them to observe what Jesus taught? He might have been a good man, maybe even a good teacher on some things, but teaching that his words carry divine authority? No way. How dare you even think that you have the right to tell us that we should also follow him? The world rages against us because we are the light and represent God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and He has commanded us to teach them His commands. They hate the light and love the darkness. They want us to disappear as they did Jesus Christ, so the light disappears so they can live comfortably in their darkness. Our light makes them come face to face with His authority, so they plot against us. They want to push back our light. They want us to hide our light. They want us to cover our light. You can believe that, but keep it in your houses. Don't bring it into the public square. Is that what's happening today? Do we see that? Do we see the truth of the matter that sinful men hate God? They war against God. They want nothing to do with God because He is diametrically opposed to what they want in their lives. This is the stark reality of where we live right now, and it can be very, very overwhelming We know that Jesus is victorious over sin and is a risen Savior. We know that He sits at the right hand of the Father right now, but the war we are in is hard. There are casualties. There is injustice. And it sometimes seems that we are on the losing side. Amen? How many of you think that sometimes it just feels like we're on the losing side? We are not gaining any ground. We just keep beating our heads against the wall. We keep doing what God wants us to do, and we are losing the battle. How many of us feel that? Their army is bigger. The media is on their side. It seems as if we are surrounded and there is no place for us to keep our families safe. Every time we turn on the TV, the world tries to indoctrinate our children. Every time they play a video game, the world tries to indoctrinate our children. Every time we send them to school, we cannot protect our kids from the world. And we are losing. That's what we often feel, isn't it? But the next stanza steadies us in this war. It helps us battle on no matter what the odds are right now, no matter what we perceive. The next stanza brings great hope and comfort into our lives. Let's read verses 4 through 6. Psalm 2, 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You know what the psalmist is saying right here? Sinful man can't win. No matter what you see, no matter what you look at right now, sinful man cannot win. Sinful man can't win no matter what's going on in your life right now. Forget the picture that was painted in the first stanza. All the nations of the world assembling all their resources for war against God. Think of what those resources are. Think of what they have at their disposal. All the armies, navies, air forces, and marines of the world ready to fight against God. All the nuclear weapons ready to fight against God. Think about this picture that is being painted. I mean, people are intimidated by the United States military. It keeps us safe. But we have to understand something. This picture is all the militaries of the world, all the national might throughout the world is marshaled against whom in this war? God. And what does God do? 
What does God do? He who sits in heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He laughs. And, okay, I'm a guy. I did have altercations is what I will call them when I was growing up. I'm not proud of that, but, you know, I got into fights. I know what it feels like to be in a fight. And when I bring what I have to the fight, and the other guy stands back and goes, huh, you're going to hurt me with that? You know what goes on in my heart? Oh, crud. That, that's, what, that's what's happening here. All the nations are marshaled against God, and God sits back and goes, is that all you got? Are you kidding me? He laughs at them in derision. We don't have to be afraid of them. We don't have to be afraid of that army because our God is not afraid of them. He laughs. And if I was in that position, I would be so concerned. Then what does God do? So he laughs. Look at verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What does God do? He speaks. That's all he does. He speaks. All this might marshaled against him, and he speaks. He doesn't have to go to war with them. It's not a, they win one and he wins one. He speaks in his wrath and terrifies them. He doesn't need weapons. He doesn't need an army. All God needs are his word. And the army of the world, the armies of the world tremble at his very word. We need to be encouraged by this. God is not threatened. He is not worried. No matter what we encounter in the war we are part of, because we are God's people, we know from Psalm 2 that sinful man cannot win, and it is so one-sided that our God sits back and laughs at anything that the world decides to throw at him. Their assembling against God is an act of futility, and they just don't see it, and they never will. Look again at verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. When the end time comes, when all the nations actually do come against God, God says, I have set my king on Zion. In other words, I have set the risen Savior who has been sitting at my right hand on David's throne in Jerusalem, just like I said I would. Jesus is not ruling from Zion right now. He is ruling as King of kings, Lord of lords, at the right hand of the Father. He is that part of the end times when Jesus comes back, claims this as his own, and takes his seat on the, on the throne of David. That has not happened yet. But in God's eyes, it is already done. I have set my king on Zion. And you know what he's saying? There is nothing anybody in the world can do about that. I have set the King of kings, Lord of lords, the resurrected Savior that we are here to celebrate today, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. The psalmist says, God says, I have set him on Mount Zion. I have set him on David's throne in Jerusalem. Amen. And you know why we can be so sure that that's going to happen? Why can we stake our very eternity on that? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You know why we know that future event is going to happen? Because the Old Testament predicts what? 
Jesus Christ, the, uh, the Messiah, the one who's going to free them, the one who's going to rise from the dead. And you want to know something? Did that all happen? Yes. Did over 500 people see him after he died? Yes. Did they, the apostles see him ascend into heaven? Yes. Did the apostles touch him and watch him eat? Yes. And you want to know something? We know that he will be set on the King David's throne in Mount Zion, in Jerusalem. And we know that will happen beyond a shadow of a doubt, no matter what the war is doing around us right now. We know that will happen because he is resurrected and that prophecy came true. And we know the next one, when he comes back, is also going to be true. When you feel like the war is being lost, when you feel like you're overwhelmed, when you look around and think that there is no safe place to go, all we have to do is come back to Psalm Hill, Psalm 2, and understand this. God laughs, and He will set Jesus Christ as ruler over all the nations. Every knee of every human that has ever lived will one day bow before the King on Zion. Look at what we see. In Philippians chapter 2, verses, starting at verse 2. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Listen to this. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That is going to happen. That will happen. We are not going to lose the war. God is not going to lose the war, and we will see every knee that has ever taken a breath bow before Jesus Christ as Lord of Lords, King of Kings. We don't have to be fearful in this time. We don't have to think that Satan is is winning the war. He's not. God won the war by his king dying on a hill at the hands of sinful man. Think about that. God won the war when the king that is going to sit on Zion died on the cross. Who would have thought that you would win a war by letting your king be killed? Only God. This is what we find in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Amen? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with His legal demands, this He set aside Listen to this. Nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He put them to shame when Jesus Christ died on the cross. When he died for our sins and to pay the debt that we owed, and when he rose again showing that that debt was paid and that God accepted it, he won. The war is over. And one day we will see him come to claim us as his own. It is through the cross that God won the battle on Zion and will set his king on David's throne in Jerusalem. It is through the cross. It is not through weapons. It is not through strategy. It is not through tactical maneuvers. It is through the cross of Jesus Christ. That one event stands stark. And all the nations in the world have lost because of that. Sinful man will war against God, but sinful man cannot win the war. There is no weapon sinful man can bring to bear that can defeat the king who, sits on, who will sit on Zion. Why does God laugh and hold him in derision? 
because of what the third stanza reveals. The outcome of the war was never and has never been in doubt. Look at the third stanza. Let's read the third stanza. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The king who is going to sit on Zion now speaks. He says, I will take, this is Jesus Christ, I will tell of the decree. And then he tells us what the decree that God gave to him is. What is that decree? You are my son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Amen. The author of Hebrews helps us see that the king on Zion, again, is Jesus Christ. We see that here. He says, you are my son. Who's the son? And look what we see in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. He is the radiance Jesus Christ, the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe and the world of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father on high, having become much superior to the angels' names, and he is inherited name. He is inherited and is more excellent than they. How high up is Jesus Christ? Higher than the angels. Higher than any name that has ever lived on this planet. We see part of Psalms 2 in that passage. Psalm 2 finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who will be the king God sets on the holy hill. And we are the means. We need to understand this. We are the means by which Jesus Christ gains his heritage. Think about that. We are the means. We are the means when we preach the gospel and men and women and children are saved those who are saved are snatched out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light that belongs to Jesus Christ, the King who sits on Zion. And we need to picture this. It is through our witness that God has planned for Jesus to receive his inheritance. Because all of us started on what, in what army? The army of the nations. All of us. You have to understand this. Every person here was part of of the army of the nations, part of Satan's army when you were born. Every person here. And the only people who God is going to inherit are the people who are saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is us, as we preach the gospel, as we teach the gospel, as we raise our children in the gospel, as we tell our neighbors about the gospel, people in the armies of the nations lay down their arms and run to Jesus Christ. That's how We are the means by which God's people come to Him. It is our gospel presentation. Think about this. Every person that God uses you to plant the seed or harvest into His kingdom, you are the means by which Jesus Christ gains His heritage, His people, the ones that He's going to come back and bring to Him. Amen? We are the means... Our witness is important. This is what gives us confidence to speak out in the world that wants to silence us, to destroy us. The outcome of the war is never in doubt because all those who run to Jesus Christ, who will eventually sit in rule with the King of Kings on David's throne, all of them will be saved. They are part of God's heritage to Jesus Christ.
The outcome of the war was never in doubt. Look at what it says, how, it, how he says it again. Ask of me, and I will make the nations of your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. God says, I will. When God says, I will, what do we know? Will the nations ever stop the I will? No. Will all their armies and all the resources ever hinder the I will? No. He says, I will give these people to you, my son. The outcome of the war is never in doubt. And Jesus Christ will have the fullness of the reward for which he died. Part of the gospel is preaching about the judgment that is to come through the king who sits on Zion. And it is our duty to speak about that judgment just as much as it is our duty to speak of the one who came to save us. We are to warn the world of his coming. Look at what it says in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That's part of the gospel. We want everybody to understand that there's life in Christ and that He loves us and that He can forgive us from our sins. And we stop there. But the author of Psalm doesn't. He says, he says when He gains His heritage, everybody else is going to be what? There's going to be a judgment. We need to make God's judgment part of our gospel presentation. They need to know that they are at war with God. They need to know that they're going to, that war is already lost. They have no hope. We don't think about it from this perspective. The nations are trying to destroy their only hope of salvation. The nations are trying to destroy their only hope for their salvation. We need to help them understand that they are on the wrong army. They're, if they stand with the nations, they are against God. And I want you to know something right now. There are no spectator seats. If you are not saved, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if He is not your King of kings, then you are an enemy of God. You are against God. You are on the army. You belong to the nation's armies. And you are driving a tank. You're not just sitting along the side watching things happen. You are part of the war. And you are against Jesus Christ. You are against God. And we have so, been so afraid to talk about that judgment, talk about where people stand, that we have watered it down. In the gospel, we only tell half of it. We don't tell about the judgment that is to come. Verse 9 is another pointer that helps us understand that Psalm 2 is speaking of Jesus Christ. We see it all throughout the psalm. I want you to take a look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 27. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken to pieces, even as myself have received authority from my Father. And he will rule. Who is he talking about here? In the New Testament? He's using Psalm 2 to refer to whom? Jesus Christ. Revelation 12, 5. She gave birth to a male child. Who is that? Jesus Christ. One who is to rule all what? All the nations. The one who is to rule or who might rule if he wins the battle. Is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Again, referring back to what psalm? 
Psalm chapter 2. Revelations 19.50, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. This is his as Jesus Christ, which strikes, which to strike down the nations, that he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. That is the end. That is what is going to happen for anybody who is on the who belongs to the army of the nations. They're going to feel his wrath. They're going to be broken as with an iron rod. And we need to tell them that. They need to understand. Our world needs to know that. And you want to know something? What is the one thing our world doesn't want to hear? That. Our world does not want to hear that God has the authority to do that. And they're going to be against us. Again, we see that this psalm is about Jesus Christ. And it reveals the coming judgment that Jesus himself will bring to those who war against his father, against him, and against his people. And we must warn the nations of that coming judgment that will happen. There is no doubt our confidence of that terrible judgment is the, becomes the motivation for us to go out no matter what odds we have. No matter what odds we have find against us. That is the motivation that we find in ourselves to fight when we feel like we're overwhelmed and we're losing. They need to hear the gospel. They need to hear that Jesus loved them. They need to hear that he paid the penalty of their sin on the cross. And they need to hear that if they don't choose him, they will be the recipients of God's wrath. The world needs to hear that, even though they don't want to hear it. And that leaves us with the final stanza of this psalm. And in it, we find sinful man has only one hope, repentance. Sinful man only has one hope, repentance. Look at verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. They can't win the war with God. Their war with God will end in their judgment by the king who sits on the Zion, uh, in Zion on God's holy hill. They will be smashed with a rod of iron. And their only hope is repentance. And we must help them see this, even as they are trying to destroy us, as they're trying to destroy God. There are only two choices. Again, it's like I said, there's no middle ground here. You either rage against God with the nations in a war you cannot win, or you run to Jesus Christ and bow before Him in repentance. Those are the only two choices you have. It breaks my heart that sinful men cannot see this. They will rage against, they will fight to the end against the only one who can save them. They try, and they try to destroy their only hope. What grace and mercy we see in these verses God laughs in derision at their attempts to destroy him. He laughs, says, there is nothing that you're going to bring against me that's even going to make me worry one bit. But he also says, please, come to my son. Kiss the son. I don't want to deal my wrath upon you. I want you to come to me. There is nothing anybody in this room has ever done as a soldier with the nations that God won't forgive. There's nothing that anybody has ever done God will not offer His forgiveness and His salvation 
when you leave and lay down your weapons and you say, I, Lord God, need you. I will bow to you. I need you. Please forgive me. Amen? There is nothing. I don't care who it is. I don't care who has been through history. Anybody who's ever fought for the nations can come to the Lord and say, please forgive me. And our God says, yes. Again, now therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Be warned. Serve the Lord with fuel and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest He be angry. Come to Him. I want to have the Son be my Savior and not my enemy. I want the Son to be my Savior and not the one who's going to meet me in His wrath and destroy me as with a rod of iron. No matter what part of the war you've already served in, Jesus will always be there to save you. What comfort this psalm brings us as we look and see that the armies of the world are amassing against us, and we do see that. The armies of the world are amassing against us. Anybody here have any doubt about that? They're amassing against our children. We have school boards who are saying that parents don't have a right to say what their children are being taught. It is up to the state to teach. It is up to the nation to teach them what they think is right. They're amassing against us. And this is not to put fear in you. It's not for us to to go out of here quaking in our boots. It is just for us to understand the truth of the matter. They are trying to destroy God. And by trying to destroy God, they're going to try to destroy us because they can't lay a hold of Him, but they can lay a hold of us. But we must not shrink back in fear. We must not feel like we're overwhelmed and that we are losing the battle because we know the battle's already won. We know that the king will sit on on the holy hill in Zion and we understand that we are going or already have won with Jesus Christ. And I want that to comfort you now. We have so much that burdens us today. We have so much that, that even though we are here to celebrate the resurrected Christ today, amen? We understand He is sitting on the right, at the right hand of the Father, but still the war sometimes just wears us down, doesn't it? It seems, like, it seems like it's just crushing us. But we can go all the way back to the Old Testament and we can remind ourselves God laughs at their attempts to destroy Him. God laughs at, his, at their attempts to destroy us. There is no destroying of us because we belong to Him. Amen? And I hope and pray that that brings you comfort this morning on this Easter morning as we celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. But we understand that because of the resurrection, we understand the war is already won and we will see in future times, at the end times, that that resurrected Savior will sit and rule over all the nations on earth. All the nations that try to destroy us will bow their knee to Him and we never need to give up. Father God, we come to you right now And we all get overwhelmed and burdened by life. We see laws and culture and and just people warring against you. It doesn't make sense. Things that we thought were understood by everyone we're finding are being repackaged by the world sin being 
repackaged as being something good and right. Oh, Lord God. Sometimes we feel like throwing our hands up and just giving up. But Father, I pray that we wouldn't do that. I pray that we would be your soldiers, your lights, your witnesses to a dying world. And I pray, Lord God, that we are willing to endure whatever consequences that brings to our lives, knowing that the world is moving faster and faster towards the war in the end times when you will say, it's done. Lord God, I pray for anybody here who, again, who may not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would, you would open their hearts and their minds and that they would come and talk to me. And Father, I also pray for those right now, who, again, who are overburdened. I pray that this morning's sermon from Psalm 2, in light of the resurrected Christ sitting at the right hand of God, I hope that they find comfort I hope they find confidence, and I hope, Father, they find the strength to go out into the world and preach the gospel. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.